Welcome to the Sunday Sermons Podcast. It was recorded on a Sunday morning at Morrison Hill Christian Church in Kingston, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the truths and strategies presented in this message will equip you to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome again to the very small group that is here and the much bigger group that's out there celebrating with us live. We thank you for the opportunity to speak into your life story this morning. It's an honor to be part of your experience in connecting with God and worshiping with in worshiping God, giving to God, communing with Jesus and celebrating all that he has done and is doing and will do. All of it, it's just an honor to be part of this equation in any way at all. So thank you for joining us in whatever way you are joining us. Uh, today we're exploring the story of Daniel. Uh, his life story, like all of our life stories, uh, is made up of a whole bunch of really exciting moments and then a lot of long periods of waiting. I think it's important that we notice both of those. And, and before we even get started this morning, here's what I'd love for you guys to do is to think and, and just kind of say a short prayer. Maybe the Holy Spirit will bring this back and answer back later. Maybe during the talk today, maybe later. But what are you waiting for? What do you feel like God is pushing you toward? What is it that you feel like God is asking you, calling you to do? This might be one very specific thing. It may be kind of a general direction, but there's probably something that is not happening yet that you know needs to happen. And I think that's a question that we need to keep asking God. Another thing I'd love for you to keep in mind as we go through this amazing story is that God never abandons his people. Sometimes it may seem like it. If any of us are honest and transparent enough to just talk about our feelings sometimes, it feels like that often. Even those of us who know God well and have served him for years and really believe from experience, not just faith. We know that God is faithful, but in the moment, sometimes it still feels like he's silent, like he's not even there at all. Sometimes that happens. And the truth is that some of those times are the very times that he is drawing us closer to himself the most. Sometimes those are the moments where it's most important for us to serve and to do the things that he's called us to do. Some of those times, those times of waiting, those times of isolation, sometimes even moments of outright suffering, those are the things that he uses to lead us, to guide us, to change us, to transform us, to empower us, and to help us make a difference in the world. He's a wise leader. He knows what he's doing. And that's why he uses images all throughout his scriptures like he says he is a father. Fathers love their children. They protect them. They take care of them. They provide for them. But they also discipline them. And they, they, go, they do everything they can think of to prepare their children for life. Even when that doesn't make sense or when their kids actually hate it. He calls himself a shepherd. Shepherds lead their sheep in places where they get everything they need. He protects them. He guides them. He also disciplines them. And he calls himself a king and many other symbols that he uses that has this idea. He is a wise leader that knows what he's doing. He's not just someone who just hands out money or whatever else that we might wish he did. He, he actually is kind of always taking us somewhere in one way or another. Last week, we looked at some of these truths playing out in the life of Esther. It's an amazing story. If you missed that, you should either just read it in the Bible yourself or maybe go back and check it out. One of the ways we posted that message. But God blesses us with 
gifts and opportunities and he expects us to use them. One of the things that Mordecai told Esther in that story that I love and we'd like to build on that today is that God's ultimate will is bigger than any of us. He's going to, if he says he's going to, in Mordecai's case, deliver the Jews, uh, restore Jerusalem, someday send a Messiah, he's going to get those things done. He is. His, his will is bigger than any of us. And yet, and yet, he constantly, all throughout time, has partnered with human beings. He's constantly got this passion. Part of his unwavering will is to partner with us. And he gives us choices that actually matter, that shape the story especially in whatever smaller circles that we live in, whatever influence he's given each one of us. The gifts and the opportunities that he gives us are there for a reason. They're not just for fun. They're not just for our own glory. There's something to do. And so last week, this is where we went. And this week, as we get ready to go into Daniel's story, I want you to remember one more time what we learned from Esther was that we've got to play our parts strategically. You've got to play your part strategically. I've got to play mine. We can't just be reactive. We've got to be proactive. We can't just respond to what other people do, to whatever circumstances, good or bad, that are happening around us. We've got to constantly be seeking God's will and doing whatever it takes to get that done on this earth. Daniel's story begins about 120 years before Esther's does. Uh, for years, God had warned his people that if they didn't straighten up and do some specific things and stop doing some other specific things, that he was going to send them into exile. Finally, by the time the prophet Jeremiah and a few other prophets were around and speaking God's word to his people, uh, he said, hey, it's too late. The really famous uh, chapter, Jeremiah 29. Uh, we love that passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, put it on coffee mugs and t-shirts all the time. But that, in that chapter, what he is saying is, you are going to go to exile. This is going to happen. There's no more chances. This is done. You're going to be there 70 years, just like God said. You better make the most of it. And Daniel's story starts at that moment in time when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked Jerusalem and took a bunch of people captive. This happened a couple times in waves, but the first one we know from history in and out of the Bible, this was in 597 BC. We know this not just from the book of Daniel. This story happens in Daniel chapter 1. Also, it happens in 2 Kings 24. It's referred to a few other places. And we also know it from the Babylon Chronicles and, and several other places in history outside of the scriptures. You're seeing a picture right now of um, one of these tablets that tell the same stories with the same basic facts, but from the perspective of Babylon itself. Now, the people in this story... You've got to remember, there are heroes. We love to talk about them almost like they're superheroes or mythical characters, but they were real people. This happened. This is history. And they were asking the same kind of questions that we would be asking if we were in their situation. The same questions we ask right now every single day as human beings. For example, how do you stay faithful when God is silent? How do you submit to authorities? when those authorities are not submitting to God? How do you know if and when and how to resist? How do you know if and when and how to submit? 
These are timeless questions. These are things that are so much bigger than the situation the world's in right now. They're going to be bigger than any situation that comes after this. They've been bigger than Daniel's situation, every situation up until now. And that's why each year at Morrison Hill, we come back to this idea of ultimate authority. And we pray and we say, God, what do you want to teach us this year? And some of the core truths that we always remind ourselves about is that we submit to authorities, all authority in the family, in the church, outside in the community, to the country, to the world. However we submit, we do that out of reverence for Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. And also we remember together that we are his representatives on this earth. He has given us the authority to change this world for him, to build his kingdom, to make disciples who make disciples and change this world to accomplish his world. And the way he does that is what we've been talking about with Esther and what we're talking about today. God blesses us so that we can bless others. One more time. Anytime you see in the scriptures that someone has described their physical appearance or something like that as specific details are given, it's because it's important to the story. God loves everybody no matter what they look like or what talents they have. But we know that Daniel and his friends were good looking. We know that they were intelligent. They were educated. And all of those things, they matter in this story. Here's a question to ask. Not just right now, but later on, today, and in the next couple weeks. What are the blessings God has given you with? What are your gifts? What are the things that he has given you? And how can you use those to bless others? More importantly, how is God calling you to bless others? Because God blesses us so we can bless others. Well, Daniel and his friends were actually pretty young teens when this story begins. 597 BC, they were probably about... 13 or 14 years old. They were members of the royal family, not necessarily the princes, but cousins of them. They were part of the entourage of the palace, if you will. And they became kind of, because of all of the gifts and potential that they had, the experience that they had up to that moment, they became kind of a royal slave team that worked in the palace of Babylon. The Bible tells us they were educated for about three years, but if you look closely, it was a lot more like brainwashing. They had to learn a new language. They had to learn other ways of thinking, even though they still held on to theirs. They had to eat different foods. They even changed their names. This is significant because Hebrew names always mean something. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means God owns me or I belong to God. Azariah means God helps me or God is the one who helps God is the Savior. And yet the Babylonians changed their names and called them Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I don't know for sure why we always still call Daniel by his Hebrew name and the other three by their Babylonian names, but that's how it's been since about the time the story was first written. So we're going to keep doing that this week and next week when we focus on his three friends. But here's what I'd love for you to notice first as this story happens. You probably heard this. Like I said, he's made up of several, his big story is made up of several wonderful little stories and then some seasons of waiting. Notice his story starts with pain, starts losing a lot of friends and family and everything he'd known up to that point. They're led off as captives. It seems like things are about as dark as they could get. Maybe God has forgotten them. Certainly God is judging them. And yet in this moment, we see in Daniel 1.8, something amazing starts to happen in their lives. 
Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Notice a couple things happening. First off, they're still trying, and despite conforming as best they can to all the things they're forced to conform to, they are still trying to hold on to the things that make them Jews, that make them Israelites, that make them followers of Jesus. And they're doing it. Here's, I think it's a really good example to notice that they're doing this politely. They're, they're resolving they're resolving this is going to happen regardless, but their first attempt to make that happen is to ask permission, to be polite about it, to be creative, to make a little 10-day deal and see what happens. And when that works, when they win that bet, they win all the way around because they not only gain the respect of Ashpenaz, the guy in charge of them, but they gain a little bit of respect for him. They realize this guy isn't completely evil. He's just wrong. And maybe... Maybe he can help us in the future. Daniel 1.21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is so significant because of not only their faithfulness, their refusal to compromise, their, re their refuse, the, the way that they just would not back down from God and his values and what he put them there to do, but also their, their creativity, their humility, their faithfulness to serve as best as they could. Daniel actually outlasted four kings. He was there. He served under Nebuchadnezzar, who captured him and killed most of his friends and family. He served under his son, Belshazzar. He served under Darius and Cyrus, who were the Mede and Persian kings who conquered Babylon. It's almost unheard of, but this is what happens. His influence transcended all of these other authorities. And his influence still continues to this day through the scriptures and us telling these stories over and over. For those of you who like biblical trivia and just knowing how things work, here's a couple for everybody else. Hold on, it'll just take a second. But the Bible, um, normally you in the Old Testament, the Old Testament books are written in Hebrew and the New Testament books are written in Greek. That's the go-to. But Daniel, even the oldest, oldest manuscripts, for some reason, chapters 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. That's just an interesting thing. But here's another thing that's interesting. One way or another, if you squint just a little bit, you'll see that every single part of the book of Daniel is about faithfulness. God's faithfulness, even when it seems like he's not being faithful, God's power and authority over all of history and all of time that continues even when it seems like that's not happening. And also people's faithfulness to God, even when it seems like they're going to die because of that, even when it seems like they're risking everything, and they are. Faithfulness is this really cool thing that threads through. So keep watching for that as we continue the story. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. At this point in time, he's one of the most powerful people on the planet. He was crazy powerful, but also power crazy. And he has a dream one night. And these guys um, are, they're still students. They're being trained to be the wise men, the advisors of the land. But they're still students. They're kind of in, I don't know, some sort of a dorm or something. I'm sure it's not what we would picture of that. But they're, they're not exactly on the job yet. So he calls all of the wise men of the country first, the people that are the adults that are actually doing that job. And he says, hey, I want you guys to tell me something. They're like, sure. He goes, I need you to inter interpret a dream. They go, awesome, no problem at all. And he says, uh, but here's the thing. 
I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then interpret it. That's a genius move if you think about it. I, I highly recommend that you never do call a psychic on TV or anywhere like that. But I've been tempted several times just to mess with them. Because they put their, they put their numbers on there and they say, hey, call. And I just know they're going to go, can you give me your name? Can you give me your credit card number? And I would love to go, why don't you tell me? You know what I'm saying? If you're really a psychic, you should know this. You should know that I was about to call you. You should call me and say, hey, I know that you're watching this TV right now. This is, that's a genius move. If somebody really has power, they should have power, right? And Nebuchadnezzar, for all his other faults, he knew this. But it scares everybody else to death because their power was really just kind of being creative to interpret whatever dream he had. <laughs> Making it up, if you will. So he says, okay, I'm going to kill everybody. I told you he wasn't perfect. He's going to kill all the wise men and all the student wise men. So Daniel 2.14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. Once again, we see this pattern. We see his trust in God, but we also see this guy's actually pretty smart about it. Notice he does four things. What he does in this story, he first, he asks Arioch, he says, why? Why are you trying to kill us? What have we done? What's going on? Can you just tell me why before you kill us? He's polite, but he's also just not letting them kill them. All right? Second thing that happens is he, he says, can I go talk to the king myself? Which is unheard of. And yet he lets him do it because they've already been earning this mutual respect, this, this reputation that these guys aren't just crazy rebels. They're actually really smart. They actually know stuff. So he goes to the king and he says, would you at least give me a chance to ask my God to reveal this to me? Would you at least give me a chance? So he goes, sure. Next, he and his friends go and they do probably the wisest thing on this list. They go and they pray to God for help. Together they go to him. And in the middle of the night, God gives them the answer. And so then before they even go back to Nebuchadnezzar, they take a moment to pray. They take a moment to praise God. Maybe they sang it. We don't have the tune. We do have the lyrics. I'm going to read those to you in a second. But here's what we know. They praised God in the middle of the night, and then they went and did what God had just empowered them to do. Pretty good pattern for all of us to follow. Daniel 2, verses 19 to 23 says this. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we ask of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. May we always... In moments of stress, moments of crisis, act like this. May we go to God and remember that he is in control. May we submit as much as we possibly can, but also resolve not to submit where we know we cannot. And may we take time to praise God when he, the great cosmic God that's in control of everything, does something specific for us in response to our prayers.
Well, not long after that, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. This time it was about some scary statue and a big rock that comes and crashes into the statue and destroys it. And then the rock grows and fills the whole earth. Sounds a little bit weird, but what it, those of us who have really studied it, um, a lot of people interpret this different ways, but here's what I know for sure. This is all I have time to tell you. It does two things that are incredibly important. One is this dream is an accurate predi prediction of history, not just some specific things that happened right after that, but also if you squint a little bit, you can see it's kind of a pattern of history that it follows. The second thing it does is it reveals, God is revealing, and even to this king, Nebuchadnezzar, through Daniel and his friends, his ultimate authority, and he's also revealing his worldwide vision. At the end of this chapter, we see that Daniel becomes a head official working in the palace, and his three friends become high officials that do not work in the palace. It doesn't really explain why Daniel's not in the next part of the story. That's where we're going to go next week, by the way, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some other great stories that kind of tie in with that one. But we're going to move on with just Daniel at this moment, and I just want to let that percolate that maybe the reason Daniel's not in that story is because he's working in the palace and they're not, but the Bible really doesn't tell us for sure. He has another dream. This time it's about a huge tree and it grows really, really big and it gives food and shelter to many. And then people come and cut it down and actually put chains around the stump and then it's exposed to the weather. This guy had some weird dreams. But they came from God. And once again, Daniel, Daniel really respectfully but boldly tells him what it means. And he tells him that the tree represents him. And his kingdom that God has allowed to grow big and powerful and make a big difference and shelter and supply a lot of the world. And yet he needs to change. He needs to remember that God is the one who gave him those abilities. He, Daniel pleads with him to stop sinning in some specific ways. He pleads with him to start helping the poor, which is something that's always on God's heart. Notice, though, that King Nebuchadnezzar did not handle this situation with wisdom and discretion as, as Daniel did. One year later, we see in Daniel 4.30, and he's standing on top, of a mount, uh, on top of his palace, and he's looking out across the city. It says, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic Splendor. And right that moment, God actually speaks out loud. And it's this really crazy moment in the story because he kind of goes crazy. And he, he, for a season, I don't know why they allowed him to still be the king. I guess Daniel and others kept things going for him while this is happening. But for quite a while, he's walking around on his hands and knees. He doesn't get any haircuts. He can't even speak. He's basically an animal. Just really goes crazy for a while. Completely humiliated in every possible way. And by the end of this experience, he finally gets it. He finally repents. But can I talk to you parents for just a second and anybody else who has any influence at all over young people? I want you to notice what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it right toward the end of his life. But because he has spent most of his life setting a bad example, that at least had to contribute to his son's bad choices. Now, I'm not blaming parents, don't get me wrong. 
young, there are wonderful parents all the time that make all the right choices and their kids rebel. That happens to God, the only perfect father there's ever been. It happens to him all the time. But at the same time, if, if you look back in your life like I do, some of the things that I wish my kids would not have picked up are the very things they, they do pick up. And other things I wish they would have picked up, maybe they don't. I'm not judging my boys, I'm just being harsh on myself and trying to be real and, and honest. I think it's really important that we who are in any kind of authority at all, that we're always intentionally setting a good example. We're praying about that. We're strategically using those gifts and those opportunities God gave us. But here's what we know about Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the king um, who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar, his son, the only story we know about him is this one big party that he threw the night his kingdom was done. He didn't reign very long. And at this one big party, he actually made a massive mistake. He got cups from the temple of God that his dad had stolen from Jerusalem. And they used this to get drunk with in honor of a bunch of idols. Several layers of things that God just really, really didn't want done. And you might say the handwriting was on the wall. You, you actually should say that because that's where that phrase comes from. Here comes God's hand writing on this wall. And they know the only person who can interpret that is Daniel. So they call him in and he tells him, listen, this is not good news, but I'm going to tell you the truth. This means God has measured you. He has decided tonight is the last night you're going to be king. You're going to be taken over by the Medes and the Persians. They're actually on their way. They're almost at the gates. It's done. It's over. The guy kind of panics. He still promotes Daniel. Somehow that promotion lasts when the Medes and Persians take over that night, just like Daniel said. He still gets to stay in power underneath them. But Belshazzar is gone. Now the story continues, and we're almost to the part that everybody knows and the stuff that's going to really, I hope, inform the rest of our lives today. Darius the Mede, we know from history, was a very benevolent ruler. We see this very clearly in this story, in the Bible's version of this story, which is the obviously really true one. But we see this in history. He was a pretty good guy. It's clear that in this story, he respected Daniel, and he wanted to promote him even more. But he's also a human being who makes mistakes. And he's a law-abiding citizen, a law-abiding king. And as we looked at last week in the story of Esther, the, the Medes and the Persians had this thing that if there was a law passed, even if it was just kind of a second thought kind of a law, once it was sealed with the king's seal, you cannot revoke it for any reason. This comes into this story here. But what we're seeing is Daniel now serving the third king that he's been serving, not counting the one that he was in the court at Jerusalem back in the day, but the third king now that he's serving in Babylon. He's really doing a good job. The people that don't like him, they can't find anything wrong. They, they're trying their best. They can't see anything that he's doing that's dishonest or, or, or less than good. So they decide to frame him. They decide to try and figure out something that has to do with his faith in God. The one thing that's a little bit different than all the other of them. And then, you know, this is the one thing he will not compromise about him. And I know you've heard this story, but this is what they use. They know that one of the things he did every day faithfully was pray three times, looking out this one window that faced in the direction of where Jerusalem was. And that's where he would pray. And he would not do, he would not compromise that for any reason. So they come up with this plan to have a law where for a certain period of time, everybody just could pray to the king. I don't know why he allowed them to 
to do that, why he stealed that, but they got that done, and then they used that, they manipulated the situation so that Daniel has, he obviously breaks that law. Daniel 6.15, in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. And so that night, even though he tried, he couldn't figure out a way to not do this, and he sends Daniel into the tomb. I say tomb, but only because I just want to highlight, this is an interesting parallel with his and Jesus' life and all of our lives. Even though Daniel was saved from those lions, can you imagine spending the night in a pitch black hole with a bunch of lions? Even if they're not eating you? You talk about isolation. You talk about waiting. You talk about shelter somewhere inside. This is a pretty rough night. And yet you see him trusting and obeying. Another thing you see that's similar, it's kind of like him being in a tomb. But the very next morning, you see Darius rushing very early in the morning back to where they had left Daniel. And he finds out that he's alive. He's not only alive, he thrives. And he outlasts Darius and then serves under Cyrus, Daniel 6.8. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. C.S. Lewis has a really interesting thing to say in the screw tape, later, screw tape letters. He actually has a whole bunch of really interesting things to say, but I'd like to highlight this one. He says, humans are amphibians. They belong to the eternal world, but they inhabit time. I'm still reading his words at this moment. You see just that first part of the quote right now. He says, this means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Notice what he says next. He says, their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. I love the way he talks. But some people really don't like all those big words. So let me break this down. Here's what he's saying. You, here's what you can expect in life. You've got an eternal soul, but you're trapped in space and time while you're here. And one of the things you can always count on is there's going to be cycles. It's not going to be the same. There's going to be seasons. There's going to be times. There's going to be repeating patterns. There's going to be highs and lows. There are going to be good times and bad times, really exciting moments and really boring ones and really scary ones and really hard ones. And it's all going to go round and round and round until you get to step into actual eternity. That's how it is. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. That's how it is. And the rest of Daniel's story is actually a whole bunch of visions where God is telling him some specific things about this world and time. He's talking about the Messiah that's going to come. And he's reminding Daniel of these eternal truths that he has. Daniel 7. Um, he, Daniel is actually writing in the first person here. And he says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus. This is a messianic passage. And notice that this messianic passage has those same two themes that God loves so much his ultimate authority over the whole process, and also a worldwide vision. This Messiah that's going to come is that. I think it's very significant that Jesus 
often would refer to himself in the third person and talk about the son of man. And he's referring to this passage. He's referring to Daniel's, Daniel's title for the um, Messiah. Now, Daniel has a bunch of amazing dreams. Uh, one of the other ones that I wish I had time to walk you through this whole thing. I've got one more that I want to highlight, and then we're going to wrap up today. But listen to this. This is amazing. One of the dreams that he has, one of the visions, is an angel actually comes and talks to him. And this is after three weeks of him fasting and praying about a very specific thing. I don't know if you've ever fasted and prayed. If you haven't, you really should. This is one of the spiritual disciplines that I feel is one, is God, all of us in one way or another should try. Sometimes some of us have found it to be incredibly meaningful and powerful in our lives on a regular basis. But he is fasting and praying for three weeks. I've never gone that long. But he's fasting and praying. He's asking for something specific. And it feels like to him that God is not answering. It feels like to him that he's just spending week after week, literally waiting on an answer, nothing happens. But what I love is in this story, it's in Daniel 10. You should read it for yourself word for word. But when the angel shows up, he goes, he's kind of out of breath almost. And he goes, hey, man, I'm so sorry. God heard your prayer three weeks ago. But I've been fighting this one demon that's over Persia. And I finally had to get this other angel named Michael to come in and step in and help me so that I could finally get here. So here's your message. It's this really crazy, weird moment. But what that tells me is not exactly how spiritual warfare works, exactly how angels are all lined up on the good side and the bad side. I wish it explained that better. It really doesn't. But what it tells me is, just like it says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And sometimes there aren't just things going on that we don't understand that God is doing or not doing. Sometimes there's all these other forces going on, angels and demons and other things that we don't even understand at all. There's other stuff going on that's just crazy sometimes, and we have no idea. We think we do, but we don't. And I think that's very humbling and very important that we remember there were even things Jesus didn't know. He said he didn't know the day that he would come back. Only the Father knew that. We see a hint of that in Daniel 12, 9. But then he said, go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the end of time. And in Daniel 12, 13, these are the last words of the book, the last messages of the messengers God sent to him. They say to Daniel, as for you, go your way until the end. You will rest and then at the end of days, you will rise again and receive the inheritance set aside for you. Go your way until the end. You will rest. And then at the end of days, you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. That's a message that God has for every single one of us. Your life is going to have a lot of ups and downs and cycles. That's how it is. You're going to have exciting moments and long periods of boringness and waiting. You're going to have a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of wonderful, wonderful things happen. But if you're faithful, if you do the things that God calls you to do, you make sure it gets done. Someday you're going to rest and someday you're going to experience an eternal reward. So here is the message at the heart of all of the story of Daniel that I'd love for you to take away today. Obviously that theme of faithfulness, but here's what faithfulness looks like. Find a way to trust and obey. Find a way. 
Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be confusing. Sometimes it's going to, you're not going to know for sure that it is the right way. But you need to find a way. You need to constantly be saying, what has God empowered me to do? How can I bless others with that? What is God calling me to do? How can I possibly submit as far as I can? How are ways that I cannot submit? What is the way that I need to trust God? What is the way I need to obey God? Find it and do it. God expects you to play your part strategically. He will never abandon you. He will bless you so that you can bless others, but you have got to find a way to trust and obey. We would love to know how we could help. Maybe some of you are making a decision this morning at home to serve God in a better way, to give your life to him for the first time. Maybe you are giving your life to God in a, to do a specific thing. Maybe you know exactly what it means to trust and obey this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. Or I don't know exactly what he's calling you into, but I, I beg you, I plead with you, I challenge you, I dare you. Find a way to trust and obey and get it done. Let us know how we can help. We love you. God bless you. That concludes the Sunday Sermons podcast. You can respond to the invitation you just heard where you are right now. Don't waste this opportunity to change your life for the better. If you've made a decision or are interested in learning more, please visit us at morrisonhill.com.